Before we get going, I have a couple quick program notes. First, I'm excited to announce that we'll be doing a live episode of the Ed Surge podcast this coming Thursday, December 3rd, at the ISTE 20 virtual conference. I will be sitting down for a conversation with Jose Wilson, the founder and CEO of EduColor, and we're going to be talking about inclusive teaching. I've wanted to have Jose on the podcast for a long time, actually, so it's finally happening, and I'm really looking forward to it. And if you're going to be at the ISTE conference this week, please do search the program for the details and join us. Also, regular listeners to the podcast know that we have been doing a series all semester called Pandemic Campus Diaries. And we have been hearing from professors and students on six campuses about their lives and the challenges they're facing during this impossible time for all of us and for education. We've been doing those episodes every other week, all semester long. And But we're actually skipping this week, which would have usually been a, a, one of those. But I am working on the season finale. Please subscribe to the EdSurge podcast if you haven't already to make sure you catch all this good stuff that's coming. But you are in the right place for this week's episode, an interview with an author who has a book hot off the presses about the future of public higher ed. Here we go. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and editor here at EdSurge. It has been about exactly a month since the American presidential election. With a new administration coming in, there is bound to be lots of talk about things like making college free and how to help people pay for higher education. And today's guest, John Warner, has just released a timely book with fresh arguments on how to frame the larger question of who should pay for higher education and even how we should think about college's place in American life. The book is called Sustainable, Resilient, Free, The Future of Public Higher Education. You may know John Warner from his regular columns in Inside Higher Ed, or maybe from his column about books that runs in the Chicago Tribune, or maybe you know his previous books, like Why They Can't Write, Killing the Five-Paragraph Essay and Other Necessities. I've always loved that subtitle. We've had John on the podcast before, talking about his previous books, and honestly, he is one of my favorite people to help think through and make sense of some big issues facing education. And we did have a lively conversation. I don't want to give away too much, but we did talk a little bit about why he thinks big, shiny trends in ed tech like MOOCs, those so-called massive open online courses that were big a few years ago, that those can be a distraction from what he sees as the bigger systemic issues of how to make high-quality college education available to as many people as possible. We started out talking about why he thinks one of the biggest problems over the last few decades can be traced to one source, the U.S. News rankings of America's best colleges. It seems like these rankings have been around forever, right? But actually, U.S. News rankings started in 1983, And Warner says they ended up turning higher ed into a sort of hunger games where campuses are attacking each other for scarce resources and even survival. The idea is that colleges would compete their way to excellence. And what that has devolved to over time is colleges will compete their way to getting students to pay them tuition. And we have all of these, what I would argue are non-core activities around trying to enroll students, Um, like marketing, like the University of Alabama has something like 30 people to go out and recruit students. Um, Alabama is close to, if not already, a majority out-of-state, University of Alabama, majority out-of-state 
um, student population. Some um, absurd number of their students come from my home state of Illinois. They had something like 1,600 students from Illinois alone enrolled at one time, uh, Illinois is being a, a net exporter of college-age students. Um, this kind of system where different states are swapping students in order to um, realize greater revenue through out-of-state tuition or to compete uh, in the U.S. News, and, U.S. News and World Report rankings to increase their prestige has created what I think are these massive inefficiencies in the system. There's all kinds of money be it student tuition, be it um, public money, be it whatever, that is wasted on the battle to enroll students. When there are more than enough students in the state of Illinois for Illinois to enroll college students, there's more than enough students in the state of Alabama for Alabama to enroll college students. And the system that has states like swapping massive numbers of students as they chase prestige, as they chase tuition money, has created this hugely dysfunctional system. And we need to stop treating it as like, oh, we're just enrolling students who are going to get a degree and go off and get a single job, right? Our, our, our measurement of the return on investment of the degree has devolved into kind of what is the first job they get and what is their salary? Instead, you know, you and I are about the same age. I think it's, it's like uh, my college was a fully embodied experience. It was all that stuff that, that happens to us in college and all the lessons we learn whether they be in the classroom or, or not. And those things matter. And the system we have steadily devalues those things. And, and those make, things, sorry to stop you, but those things being those clubs and yeah, those things. And, and, and even at, you know, at, at schools where, um, you know, if, if you're going to a commuter college or a community college, you may not have as many of those, those things, but those colleges are sort of required to try to emulate those that do, right? And so we have this kind of prestige economy that's divorced from the mission of educating students. And when I say educating, I mean in the whole sense, right? Not just credentialing, not just classes. And this it's created this sort of vicious cycle that I think is bad. It's, it's bad for students. It's bad for faculty. It's bad for staff. It's bad for the institutions. And mostly it's not sustainable. Um, it never has been. It was bad before COVID, and now it's, you know, COVID has, has crushed state budgets. It's looking like there's a enrollment decline, um, and it's going to get worse. So I believe the, the way to put, put these institutions on the path to sustainability and improved operations and fulfilling the missions is to fund them with public money, something that used to be broadly the case at our public institutions. Um, you and I, 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 I just, I turned 50. I, I won't ask how old you are, but I, I think we're, I'm think getting we're about, close. I think we're about, we're close to the same age. Uh, my, um, matriculating class, 1988, uh, we were about the last year, even not even just generation year where college was broadly affordable, a, a public college and university. Um, and in fact, the tuition at the university of Illinois um, doubled between 1984 and 1988. It just happened to double from around $1,000 to around $2,000. So it was still affordable, um, but it was already on this trajectory that has now become, um, I, I want to say the tuition at Illinois is somewhere, depends on your major, it's between $17,000 and $21,000 
wow. year. Um, and but mine the difference was, there. Is, mine was twenty two hundred. Yeah. So that's yeah, that's different. That's different. Yeah. Now you used a word that I was surprised by, and that was infrastructure. Mm-hmm. How is a public college infrastructure? So again. It's, these things don't seem controversial to me, but when I introduce them into this conversation we're having about them, they, they are, they, they do seem unusual. Um, think of your local college or university. They are an employer. They are a cultural hub. They are a technology hub. Um, they fulfill all of these roles um, simultaneously just in their day-to-day operations. They're then also educating the populace, hopefully, of your of your state community locality. And in that way, they are creating these assets that the state, the locality, the community is going to be able to use on a continuous and ongoing basis. To me, that's infrastructure. Um, The same ways we look at our libraries and our K-12 schools as infrastructure or or roads. The problem is we haven't been treating them that way. We've been treating them as this sort of uh, private good. States have been disinvesting for 40 plus years. Um, with an incredible acceleration during the um, most recent recession and a coming um, disinvestment that will probably dwarf the last one. Uh, it's it's really going to be scary to see what, what um, colleges are facing. And treating these things instead like this is a thing that's going to help us prosper as a state community locality changes how we look at how we fund them, how they operate. The, the role they have. If you think about schools, the, the school I like to use as an example in the book is uh, the University of Wisconsin Stout, which is in Menominee, Wisconsin, um, where University of Wisconsin Stout is about, student body is about 80% as big as the town itself. So if you can imagine places like University of Wisconsin Stout, which are all over the country, right? particularly when we start including our community colleges, as we should. Um, you know, the, the second biggest college in, the, in Charleston County where I live is our community college. Um, it, it employs lots of people. It enrolls lots of students. Um, these are things we need. If they are gone, we will miss them terribly. It's the same phenomenon of, like, the manufacturing base leaving the Rust Belt states. If you start closing these colleges or, or making them into incredibly diminished things, we're going to experience a kind of loss of this um, incredibly important uh, community resource, only it won't be confined to pockets. It'll be all across the country. Um, and that just doesn't sound like an acceptable path to me. How, how worried are you that that could happen? I'm worried. I'm worried. Um, the appetite for funding our public colleges and universities has not been there recently. Um, there was some good momentum around these things during the Democratic primary. There was a lot of talk about debt cancellation and, and free college. Um, I think the results of the election put some of this in flux. Um, I think it's undeniable that schools, public colleges and universities will need some kind of emergency funding um, coming out of whatever uh, coronavirus package hopefully can get passed when we have a new administration. And I'm equally convinced that that's not going to be sufficient to um, 
maintain or retain these institutions. And if states are going to be broke, I don't know where the money comes from. Um, there's there's no room to raise tuition. Uh, raising tuition has already cut schools off from their main mission, in my view, which is to educate the public and be accessible to the public. So if we continue to raise tuition, that's going to be a problem. So we need bold action. Um, I, I think there is some recognition that the federal government has a role in this. Um, I think you've even seen people who um, previously did not think that um, are starting to move. Uh, somebody like Kevin Carey at New America, who wrote you know a book about the the end of the the of the university and uh, was at the end of college and the the beginning of the University of Everywhere, has been writing very persuasively about the need to to give some money to public colleges and universities. I think there's a, a broad recognition that we may lose this precious thing, but we're in an emergency where there's lots of bad things happening. And so for public colleges and universities to, you know, receive the kind of funding that's going to be necessary is um, not a guarantee. And it really is going to be, if we lose these things, they will be difficult to impossible to, um, bring them back. Uh, furloughing is one thing. Um, shedding faculty permanently is another. Um, you can't just sort of build these things up. And, and to build them back, if we want them, will be far more expensive than trying to preserve them. Now, you talk in the book about the much maligned kind of lazy rivers that public colleges and, right. and all kinds of colleges have built in recent years. The luxuries, years. the luxuries. The luxuries, all the, yeah. all the amenities. Right. And right. people bring it up all the time, like you say. Um, I certainly hear it. People in this, I'm sure people listening to this have heard it, right? And you mentioned that it's actually both parties do it. Um, so it's kind of bipartisan, rarely. And also, um, you know, a lot of ed reformer folks are really excited to talk about these lazy rivers as an example of mm -hmm. criticizing higher ed for its excess and warped priorities. But I found you have a surprising defense of the lazy river, or <laughs> well, at least a different way to yeah. think about it. The defense of the lazy river is that there really aren't that many of them. Um, the The lazy river has become the sort of stand-in for the luxury amenity and this kind of thing. And um, the uh, reality is very few universities, and this would be exclusively like large, large state universities, have these sorts of amenities. Um, those that do have them tend to be places like LSU or the University of Alabama, where uh, uh, a lazy trip through um, tepid water, I'm sorry about that, um, a lazy trip through tepid water would be a, um, a necessity given the climate of that kind of thing. Um, there actually is not a lot of evidence, and, and I cite um, some studies in, uh, in the book about the rise of amenities, right, as, as being related to an increase in costs. And there's, there's no persuasive evidence that this is the case. Um, most of the increase in cost in college for tuition really is um, state disinvestment. Tuition goes up because states pay less. That is just a hard fact. There are other contributing factors, um, Amenities not really being one of them, more like colleges are more expensive to um, run. Um, they are uh, more complicated places. 
Um, a, a big contributor is the cost of healthcare, right? If your if your healthcare cost goes up five or ten percent every year, that's just a cost that colleges have to absorb. And the reality is, um, we know we're at the end of line at the line for this because um, we were trying to solve it through things like adjunctification, right? We're going to have a cheaper faculty, and and we have done that. Except we we're now at the point where a majority of faculty is not tenure track. Um, this sort of doing more with less mentality was never real. It's always going to be less with, you do less because you have less. There are no more efficiencies to be had. And, and the, the boogeymen of, of sort of the luxuries and, and fat cat um, universities, it, it simply is not true. If you go to um, even our, our sort of most prominent R1 universities, they are living largely hand-to-mouth. And then if you look at community colleges, um, they are the opposite of fat cats. They are doing incredible work on austerity budgets that have been getting worse and worse and worse and worse. So one of, one of the messages of, of the book I, I want us to absorb is we have to stop thinking about college as, uh, and universities as being defined by the elites, right? Particularly equating what's going on at a Harvard or a Yale, the elite private institution with the publics, as well as not defining all publics by relatively elite R1s like LSU or the University of Illinois or uh, these sorts of places. The The fact of the matter is, is the vast majority of students are educated at institutions that are not those, that are uh, regional or local public institutions or community colleges. And um, I've got the stat in the book. I can't remember it exactly, but I think it's 80% of students go to non-selective institutions. And those are the institutions that have been underfunded, that have been forced into austerity and have been doing um, incredible work, but do not have the kind of support necessary to um, do the kind of work that everybody thinks is is um, going to benefit students, communities, localities, states, all that stuff. And you also mentioned that you feel like there's the, the basically it seems like a lot of the well, actually, I think I want to get back to the University of Everywhere because I feel a certain um, you know, you mentioned that the people who have, have put forth this argument like Kevin Carey and, and some of Jeff Salingo's work and some others that have talked a lot about you know, innovation. And I will confess, like, I feel like I've written some articles that are very much right in there. So I, I'm, I can't sit here and throw stones about, you know, I've written plenty of excited articles about MOOCs, especially when they were new and how these new ideas could be helpful to the public and, and bring higher education to new audiences and solve, you know, problems, um, and help bring down the cost of college. These were kind of exciting things that journalists, uh, myself included, chased. But your your view is that these were distractions at best, I guess, or or really the wrong the wrong emphasis. Yeah, I mean, so I, I don't want to be uncharitable. I I think those technologies have a role to play in higher education. Um, I think they are exciting um, in terms of some of their potentials. That said, you know, my perspective is is as a as a lifelong contingent college instructor, right? Like I, I've been, um, I, I like to say I've been in the trenches um, teaching. Yeah, you've taught writing at I, colleges taught, for a long time as an adjunct. As an adjunct yeah. and, and lecturer, non-tenurable lecturer. 
um, a lot of general ed first-year courses, the kinds of things that um, MOOCs, as formulated by those who are most enthusiastic about them, particularly the, the purveyors of MOOCs, thought could be done through MOOCs. I knew that that was not true from the, the moment MOOCs appeared. Um, so the idea that we could um, engage in effective pedagogy through MOOCs, the kind of things that I had observed and, and participated in, I knew that that wasn't possible. Now, um, MOOC is a credentialing device. Sure, if we're going to define it down to passing a MOOC as, as your college credential, we could do that tomorrow. And we may still. That may still be what you do. Um, I think like a, a MOOC is more effective for people like me. Like if I wanted to go back and get additional training um, or a, a new degree because I'm switching careers as a 50-year-old with um, my undergraduate and a, a graduate degree, I know how to be an independent, self-starting, self-directed learner. And I would have a very specific goal in pursuing that education. I'm going to try to you know, go into some new field. On the other hand, most of our college students enter college exploring, or we should allow them the time to explore, to figure out who they are and what they want to do. And this is not just 18-year-olds. This could be somebody who's in their 20s or 30s who's returning to school looking for a new direction. And, so and that's what's happening and at that public is what, universities. That's and exactly in all kinds of universities. Exactly. Yeah. This, is the, this is the mission that public universities, I think, should be, and colleges should be fulfilling. This is, this is the job, to be a place where people from the community can come in, explore their interests, find what they're connected to, and then they are going to be, it's the, the likelihood of their ultimate success is so much greater if we allow them to enter into the world of, of post-secondary education, um, try some uh, different things out, and then figure out where their interests and skills and desires fit, and then put them into the work world, rather than everybody's got to learn to code. The fact is, not everybody needs to learn to code, and um, it's, we've seen that, that fad um, rise and fall already as well. So it's not that technology can't help us. And in fact, I think, you know, as the pandemic is showing, we need to try to get much better at our online um, asynchronous or um, high flex teaching, whatever we want to do it. Those are all things that we have to continue to get good at. Um, that said, to say this is, you know, if you are um, not wealthy or you come from a state that's totally disinvested from public ed, your only option is a MOOC or an online course, I think is, is a, would be a terrible state of things. It just doesn't sound, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sound um, idealistic here, it doesn't sound like America to me. It doesn't sound like the land of opportunity. It sounds like um, a place where if you're fortunate, you can have opportunity. If you're not, we'll give you some kind of lesser thing that maybe will get you far enough and it's just not a future that that I wish for us. Um, so it's it's not. I, I don't want to. I don't want to be like, oh, those MOOC boosters. They ruined everything. I get the enthusiasm and the the um, one of the things I will say about particularly about um, the end of college. Kevin Carey's book. His diagnosis of what ailed and ails um, colleges and universities is not any different from mine. Um, the question is, do we now have sort of the will to, um, you know, pursue a path that will renew and revitalize these institutions, or 
um, are we going to keep going down this path of increasing privatization until we're just left with kind of a, a you know, a shell, a husk, where um, some kids can go get some version of, of the kind of college experience you and I had, while others can go for their online post-secondary credential. And good luck to you out in the world trying to compete against the the students who can either afford to, to get um, something more robust or are fortunate enough to get a scholarship or, or, or sort of climb that that particular ladder. Um, I, I, I want, this sounds funny, but I want a world where students as mediocre as I was <laughs> can uh, f- go find their way in college and be as big a screw up as I was and find their way in college and still succeed in the world. Um, that should be a goal, I think, for post-secondary education. The idea that you have to pursue excellence at every moment or you have to be excellent every second of the day is just not consistent with, I think, the world we want to live in. And it's not consistent with a world that helps people thrive, right? That, that helps them do well. The theme in all the things we've just talked about a little bit is, it's sort of, how do you, you know, how do you weight the sort of problems or challenges? And a lot of the talk of MOOCs five, six years ago, because that's when, and I think the end of college, the book you mentioned, these came out in that era. And so it's hard. I mean, gosh, if think about the world has changed since then, as far as how we understand now the way things were trending. And it seems like your, your book is really kind of saying that maybe more emphasis is really got to be on these structural things. Are we paying public funds for, or, you know, uh, are we paying enough for these institutions to actually be sustainable? Cause there's not going to be, it's a, there's not going to be a tech silver bullet. It's not just that there was a mismanagement on the facilities. It's not that, um, you know, that the adjuncts is the solution. So like all these other things that, that were the kind of the, the trendy things, um, are not looking trendy right now and are not looking, are not looking very possible. Yeah. So let's talk about what you recommend. I mean, what is the answer to besides just having States be in a better position to fund them? Cause you mentioned, we are in this pandemic. We're mm-hmm. um, we're at a very tough time. Even if somebody is convinced by your arguments to um, to say, okay, let's do this, but where's the money? So right. then, what do you recommend? What are some ways to to get at this problem so these colleges don't collapse? Right. So there's there's kind of two halves to this. One is to change the orientation of these institutions um, from doing what what I call operations on down, which is essentially how do we enroll students and capture their tuition, and then we'll worry about everything else. Instead, to mission on up. So I would like to see institutions concentrating on the mission of teaching and learning, right, of educating students. I think that's, if, if we start and say, our institution should be doing this, that's the first step. Now, the next step is a big one, and it's how are we gonna pay for that, right? Um, and I think you're right. We are not going to business model our way out of this. We are not going to tech silver bullet our way out of this. None of that is going to happen. We cannot increase tuition. We cannot beg um, billionaires to fund all of our public schools. We need the structural change. And the structural change really is um, setting tuition at free, free tuition, Um which will force us to figure out a way to fund these institutions without relying on private money, 
particularly from students. States obviously can't do it by themselves, as you note. Um, that said, states will have to um, increase their contributions to higher education. We cannot have a system where states like mine in South Carolina um, fund their public colleges and universities uh, 10, 12, maybe 15% of their budgets are state appropriations. This is, um, this is not doable. There, I have, a, I have a, a chart in the, in the book from the University of Michigan where at one point they were 80 or 90% funded by the state, and now they are somewhere around 10 or 15% funded by the state. It was a, a literal reversal. In our um, lifetime. In, in our this... lifetime. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, since, yeah. Since, since like the 80s. Um, so the only other source of money is the federal government. Um, and fortunately, in a lot of ways, we've seen a, a growing um, – Comfort, let's say, with a certain amount of deficit spending, or um, particularly when interest rates are low, that we can we can fund these things that we believe are going to contribute to economic growth. And I think colleges and universities are a pretty good candidate for that kind of thing. Certainly better than cruise ships. Um, my vision, and, and um, there's a lot of details to be sorted out. And I, the the book is by by intention um, short and really wants us to get to believe that it's possible so we can start having the right conversations. But in the end, it's going to be some kind of federal-state partnership where the feds, who already do put lots of money into higher education, it's not like they're, they've hands are tied if you, if you add up all the, the federal funding, particularly through the Pell Grant system and these kind of things, it's billions of dollars. It's, it's not a little bit of money. If we instead sort of take all that money um, start giving it to states and institutions to directly reduce the cost of tuition. If we add more into that pot, um, and there's some different formulas for how we do that, um, kind of depending on who your preferred Democratic candidate was uh, during during the primary, um, you know, through increased taxes or or uh, increased taxes on corporations and these kinds of sorts of things. So it it does mean more money. It's not it's not like we can just take the existing pot and 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 repurpose it. Um, if that increased um, contribution was paired with a requirement from states to maintain their effort, I think you get something where it's doable, and we can we can um, not only maintain our public institutions as they are, but increase funding for those that are least um, advantaged, most disadvantaged, like community colleges that that see a lot less public money than many of the others. And part of this too, I'll, I'll be frank, will be um, not giving our elite, well-heeled private institutions as much public money as they get now. Um, there's, uh, I cite a study in the book, but it, it really shows that places like Stanford and Princeton get uh, tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars per student in um, public subsidies, mainly through tax breaks and that kind of thing. Um, but their students are also getting Pell Grants and, and um, other other forms of, of public money. We have to decide collectively, and if I would like to see us to decide, that public money is going to go to public institutions. Um, it's tricky. There's a lot of things that will have to be worked out. Um, there's a lot of constituencies. We don't want to wipe out sort of the private um, institutions that do important work in terms of access for underserved uh, communities and that sort of thing. We'll have to, you know, figure out some kind of formula where the um, 
you know, the schools that are enrolling um, low-income students, the private institutions, still can receive public money for that kind of mission. On the other hand, I hate to say it, places like Duke and Brown and Dartmouth that are taking 60, 70, 80% of their students from the top 20% of income, they maybe will have to survive with a lot less um, public money. Um, this is a debate. Um, I, I want to have it. I, I may lose. Um, people may decide they want to go a different path. But the, the thing that drives me bonkers lately is we're not even yet having this debate. We have to have this debate. Um, we ha- there is no other choice at this, at this time if we desire to, to retain these things that, that I call infrastructure. Um, I think I can win that debate. I think people who agree with me can win that debate. I wouldn't have written the book if I didn't think so. But I, I don't have any wish to see my vision imposed wholesale, right? Like if you could make me czar of this, I wouldn't be like, yes, immediately. Um, I even wrote about this at my Inside Herod blog this week, how um, in the initial aftermath of the election, I was like, oh man, this is going to make all this stuff much harder because um, even if the Senate does um, change into Democratic hands, the idea of sort of passing a free college funding bill is going to be very, very difficult. But as I thought about it more, I realized like if I'm going to maintain the colleges and universities or or infrastructure, this cannot be a partisan view. This must be something that becomes a bipartisan belief. And so if that requires a kind of on the ground, bit by bit, um, winning over people in order to convince them that they too benefit from the colleges and universities, because they do, um, that's what we'll do. Um, it's, it's sort of too important to, um, leave to partisan politics or believe that we should just impose it by fiat. It's, it's, um, it it was probably never going to be a good solution for it to happen that way to just sort of come down from above. So we'll, we'll do it from the, from the bottom up. Well, we could go on the rest of the <laughs> afternoon, but I really want to thank you for, for joining us and for sharing about your new book. And oh, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad to do it. And uh, it's always good to talk to somebody else who's thinking about these things too. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. I want to take a moment here to say how thankful I am for you and for all the listeners out there. Our numbers are actually growing these days um, thanks to recommendations from listeners. If you haven't already, please do take a minute to give EdSurge Podcast a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use to listen. Those ratings feed mysterious algorithms that end up recommending this show to other people if enough people have clicked their support with a five-star rating. So please do take a minute to click and so we can keep making this show better. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter at JRYoung. Thanks Thanks, as always, to Ed Surge's managing editor, Tony Wan. We'll be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thanks for listening, and be well.